Welcome to Roll Calling, a podcast about actors we love and the movies we love them in. I'm Caroline Sita, and I'm sleepy in Chicago. And I'm Ned Baker, and I cried during an affair to remember. I was wondering if you were going to say that you have a cute butt. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, you know, I was thinking about maybe doing that as my sign-off at the very end. I'll think of something else now. I'll surprise you. I've spoiled your cute butt jokes. Well, I'm glad we were on the same cute butt What about train. my butt? <laughs> Not bad. Is it cute, though? <laughs> I think I do have a pretty cute butt. I was thinking about also doing like a, I'm I'm dozing. Okay, I don't know if the po- microphone picked it up, but um, friend of the podcast Emily Marceau <laughs> is off in the other room shouting, "Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah." I was thinking about doing like a, I'm lazy in Lincoln Square or something. Oh, like that, that's but... good. I thought of mine just because as we started recording, I thought, "Wow, I'm so sleepy," <laughs> and then I realized how <laughs> fitting that was. Yeah. So the way this podcast works is that Ned and I take turns curating a five-film miniseries starring an actor that we love. The actor we love right now is Meg Ryan, the rom-com queen, love of our lives. So far, we've covered When Harry Met Sally, arguably one of the best romantic comedies ever made. We looked at Joe versus the Volcano, arguably one of the weirdest romantic comedies (laughs) ever made. So far, so good. And now we're looking at the next film that Meg made with frequent co-star Tom Hanks, which is 1993's Sleepless in Seattle, written and directed by When Harry Met Sally writer Nora Ephron, one of the best as well. Mm -hmm. But first, Ned, look up in the sky. What, What? do you see, do you see a light? Uh, beaming at the sky and it's perhaps a signal (laughs) why ned look it's the jeffrey wright signal oh the jeffrey wright signal there it is the big jw on a spotlight of course you you're so familiar with it this was a bit that i decided to spring on you no (laughs) pre-planned warning i think it's better when the the listeners get to hear me be completely confused Well, this is our classic uh, Jeffrey Wright signal section that we're so famous for, where we keep you updated on some of the projects that are past roll calling stars. Just one of our segments that we do, you know, one of our recurring segments. Yeah. So I have seen the Batman. I have not seen the Batman. You have not seen the Batman. There will be no spoilers. I will not even give an opinion on the Batman here because I know some people like to go in clean. Mm. But since this episode is dropping the day the Batman comes out, I just wanted to inform both you and our listeners that despite what the trailers may suggest, Jeffrey Wright is low-key like the second lead in the Batman. (gasps) Oh, now that is a spoiler I am happy to hear. That is such good news because he's so – he's like not in the trailers at all, but – Commissioner Gordon is such a good character. I think that is such good casting, if I do say so myself, because I did suggest it many years ago. <laughs> I am delighted to hear that he is a real feature in that movie. That's such... Oh, Caroline, you just made my whole day. Oh, good. I'm glad. Yeah, the trailers are really going all in on the Zoe Kravitz Catwoman angle. Totally. I don't... I mean, I didn't take a clock, a stopwatch to this three-hour-long film. Okay, but a little I, remiss I of think... you, but whatever. <laughs> I think Jeffrey Wright has more screen time than Zoe Kravitz does. Like, he is very prominent. I was expecting it to be more like how he was sort of lightly featured in No Time to Die. Like, had some good scenes, but a really small role. Or like how 
J.K. Simmons, Commissioner yes. Gordon, is like in 30 seconds of either cut of Justice League, I feel yes, like. Yes, after being hyped up as like, look how swole J.K. Simmons is getting for this. I was like, that's good casting. Love to see it. He does like literally nothing. Yeah, and I was kind of expecting Jeffrey Wright to be the same. But no, he is like, it's like a, a good chunk of the movie is like a sort of buddy cop detective mystery. Awesome. With Batman and Commissioner Gordon. So for you and our listeners, if you're looking for more Jeffrey Wright in your life, the Batman will not disappoint you in that regard. Thank you for sharing that. That's great you're news. You're so welcome. I thought for a moment you were doing like, look up in the sky. It's a little, it's stars that are shooting. It's 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 a sort of a weird practical map of the United States. There's lines going back and forth. A sort yes. of setting me up for a sleepless in Seattle. I didn't know we were going. Uh, taking, <laughs> taking a, a hard left turn into Gotham City mm-hmm. from Seattle. Yeah, sleepless in Seattle does. There are some things about this movie that feel very timeless. And some computer graphic and musical choices that feel supremely tied to 1993. Yes, that's true. They do something similar, I would say. There's a similar tack taken here to what you cited in When Harry Met Sally, where they go for 20th century jazz standards as a way to unmoor it from time. But yeah, definitely the CGI Empire State Building at the end is very, very of its time. Um, and yes, there's a lot more sort of '90s rom-com score stuff. A lot of synth. Is yes, used. a lot of synth, like, and a lot perky of perky synth. Oh like, my comedy god, comedy is happening. The music is doing way too much. Where they're like, it's just it's it's just doing way too much, and I, it really is like of a time. The like I don't know, cheaper by the dozen. Mm-hmm. Like there's this, just this like genre. Of like, do you know that mischief comedy is going on with kids? And uh, yeah, I, I that that was not so effective. You know, the jazz standards are still working very well. That was the better choice for sure. So, mm-hmm. okay, so we've previewed your thoughts on the music of Sleepless in Seattle, but we yeah. left last episode on a bit of a cliffhanger because we revealed you had never seen this movie before. That's right. So, Hit, hit us up, Ned. What was your viewing experience like of Sleepless in Seattle? Well, you were right that it is more low-key weird mm-hmm. than the way people talk about it. I think I just, it just looks so sort of standard, yearning, sexy. I kind of thought it was about two people like navigating like whether or not they could have a relationship like long distance or whether they like... I thought it was going to be a little bit more about an affair to remember. So I knew it had this whole influence of an affair to remember. Because as I mentioned, I had seen the scene where Rita Wilson excellently describes an affair to remember. I didn't know that it ran through the whole movie, that there's tons of clips from it. They play this, the beautiful score from it. But that movie is about people who meet early on and are... So Cary Grant, Deborah Kerr, I believe it actually is. Kerr or Carr? Kerr or Carr. Kerr. Uh, I believe it is Kerr. Um, they meet on a cruise ship and are together for the first, like, 60, 65% of the movie. And then they go back to their respective fiancés and are like, are we going to do this thing or not? And I expected that for this. I certainly did not realize that this was a boy meets girl story, except that is literally, literally the last event of the mm-hmm. film when they finally meet. And when they hadn't met for an hour, I was like, this is nuts. What a strange, and frankly, I was trying to think like weird choice to go so long before they meet each other. 
But then as it continues on, maybe I was thinking that at like the 45 minute mark, but then at like an hour 15, I think I start to realize like, oh, that's actually the whole game is that they don't meet each other. They just circle around each other the whole time. Well, they discuss relationships and expectations and predestination. There's lots of like destiny, fate, mm-hmm. love at first sight stuff in here, except it's got that 90s postmodern, like they're discussing those concepts like they are, like they are sort of self aware about them, mm-hmm. but also the movie kind of is about those things and kind of, I think, does presuppose the idea that you know there's just true love and fate and those sorts of things so yeah uh that all just was not what i was expecting and while i guess i can just say like your prediction at the beginning of this series that when you start with when harry met sally it does just have to go all downhill Mm -hmm. uh yeah it did not top when harry met sally for me but i definitely was won over by this movie in spite of feeling a little bit um, jaded about it, a little bit skeptical, shall I say, as it was getting going. Mm-hmm. It is like a high concept premise to yeah. have yeah, that's a, well a rom-com said. in which the two leads don't meet until the last scene. But I think you're right that because this has just become remembered as this beloved rom-com staple, it is mm-hmm. it does kind of just get shoved in the category of like generic rom-com. Yeah. But actually, if you were selling this today, you'd probably really emphasize that that's the unusual yes. hook of it. In the same way that, like, The Big Sick is a rom-com where notably, you sort of, like, part of the angle is one of the two romantic people is, like, in a coma for most of the movie. Mm-hmm. So that's a that feels like a huge twist. But this is definitely on that scale. The idea of they've not, they do not meet each other, see each other, touch each other until... The last, the very last scene. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. The last line is "Nice to meet you," right? Yeah, I guess so. That's yeah. clever. That yeah. Nora Ephron, you know, she's uh, she's not bad. Yeah, <laughs> she's not bad. This at what she movie does. was actually started as a script by somebody else. Interesting. A guy, I'm forgetting his name, but he had written this original drama, and then Ephron came on board, and I think did pretty significant rewrites. I think it's mm-hmm. one of those things. I found this a lot when I was just researching rom coms for the column, but. You'll have people who'd be like, oh, yeah, the draft that I wrote is the movie. And then the person that directed it and rewrote it was like, oh, no, I rewrote it from scratch. And you're like, oh, these are two very different yeah, opinions on what happened. The guy who originally wrote the screenplay is named Jeff Arch. Efron rewrote it. I think her sister helped rewrite it. There's another guy credited named David S. Ward. So definitely like a lot of hands on board, but a super creative structure. I think in some ways... I almost maybe had the opposite experience with this movie that I usually have, where I usually find this movie a little bit like sort of what you're describing, like a little bit imperfect or like not 100% there or like Mm -hmm. I can be a little more critical of it. But I feel like this time it just like really hit me emotionally like this one. It just really got to me on this viewing. I was really getting choked up at a lot of the father son stuff. Mm. And then even at the end and just... The sweetness and the melancholy, I think it's a really nice mix of romantic, but sad and wistful and cynical, Mm -hmm. but then also 
like you're saying, this really lovely belief in like fate and signs and reincarnation and like the magic of that stuff. I found it to be on this viewing, like my critical side of my brain shut off a little more and I was just kind of like swept away in it, which was a nice feeling. Oh, that sounds nice. I feel like that could very easily happen to me on future viewings because of just the, uh, again, you know, I'm, I keep using this keep using this term while we're discussing all these movies but charm there's just like mm-hmm. charm oozing out of the screen maybe oozing is too unpleasant to verb <laughs> a beaming out of the screen at you with every single one of these movies um because these are actors who are just sort of fun to spend time with they're really identifiable and likable and quirky so they don't they're, like they're they're never flat on screen, mm-hmm. and the supporting characters too. Oh yeah, great supporting cast in this movie for sure. And they all feel as human as the leads. Like I think that maybe is something that Nora Ephron's really good at, particularly mm-hmm. between this and then when Harry met Sally. I think a lot of times, like if you think of something like How to Lose a Guy in Ten Days. And it's sort of like, oh, yeah, she has these, like, office friends, but they they don't really feel like characters. They're just kind of there to yeah. move the plot forward. But I feel like Rosie O'Donnell in Sleepless in Seattle feels like a whole fully realized character that I would, similar to Carrie Fisher in When Harry Met Sally, like, I would uh-huh. so happily watch their movie in addition to this Meg Ryan movie. Okay, what's the, God, what is the little, like, subversive response? Oh, it's when, it's when... <laughs> Meg Ryan says, like, you know that dream you have where you're walking down the street naked and everyone's looking at you? And Rosie O'Donnell just goes, I love that dream. <laughs> There's just little details there. Rosie yeah, O'Donnell and- needs to start acting again. She's yeah. so good. She's so good in this movie. She's so good in A League of Their Own, which I was realizing she made with Tom Hanks the year before. That came that came out the year before this. Yeah, she So is they fun. were on a weird little roll there. Yeah. Um Rob Reiner, I want more of in this. I find oh, him so totally charming. charming. Yeah, when he's just they're having their when he I mean the little like how's my butt moment, but then him just like talking about like how to date in the nineties is really fun. Tiramisu. Tiramisu. <laughs> that's a great that's a that's a great little You'll learn bit. what it is. <laughs> David Hyde Pierce, I really wanted more of. I just oh, find I him really magnetic David on screen. Hyde Pierce. I know, I wanted more of that character. Bring all of the supporting cast of this movie back and just mm-hmm. give them some sort of ensemble comedy. Yeah, totally. Yeah, they could do I think we talked about this. It was um it was the spiritual successor to a fish called Wanda where they yeah. just got all the actors back to do a completely different thing. Kind of the same thing you see with Christopher Guest films where he has mm-hmm. an ensemble of people that he really likes working with. And so every time it's like, "Well, I'm going to see the same old faces. They're just going to shuffle up into different configurations." I feel like that is the most fun aspect of Chicago ensemble theater. Mm-hmm. You know, when I've been really bought into that, it's like just seeing these same people like, oh, who's who's going to be the kind of like this character this time? Oh, this person's doing a character we've never seen. And that is, I think, definitely like in this Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan series, which, you know, I am experiencing for the first time. You get some of that fun of like, Here's the old familiar faces. You know, Rob Reiner in here is, is not, I think, just an actor cast on the strength of his acting, although he is giving a good performance. It's clearly like, oh, that's the When Harry Met Sally director. So he's mm-hmm. playing one of the buddies in this one. That's that's really nice. Yeah. I think that is a big 
like something that is special about the rom-com genre is like there is this meta pleasure of seeing uh-huh. people reunited again and again right yeah. like you think of doris day and rock hudson made three movies together and sort of became iconic as this pairing very similar to to ryan and hanks or like Catherine hepburn and cary grant made a bunch of movies together yeah. like there is this real exactly what you're describing it's like oh my friends are together and they're kind of playing new roles like how funny but i am bringing to it I'm bringing baggage in the best sense of that word, right? Like yeah. good baggage. I'm bringing this comfort of seeing these people united and and this faded sense that they are meant to be together because I've seen them get together in so many movies before. I yeah. think that's really nice. Same with, or for a more recent example, just to finish that thought, was um, like Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone did Crazy Stupid Love and then did La La Land. Right. And I think very similarly, you're like, yeah, these are two people. And (laughs) the iconic gangster squad. (laughs) These are two people where you're like, yeah, they're supposed to be together. Like I have seen them together a lot and I like that feeling. Yeah. This is kind of, this ties into one of my like big hills that I would die on about, about art and culture is like, People always bring the baggage. Stop pretending like what people know about the behind the scenes is like cheating somehow or like we should pretend like people aren't thinking about it. Like people always are. And yeah, we, we I can say more about that at a future time. But it is really nice to see the gang get back together again. And I think it does buy you in on the, I mean, particularly now where we, we watch this movie knowing that Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks go on to do it a third time, right? So, yeah. But with that, you're like, yeah, of course it makes sense that they would be together. You aren't like, why are these two randos like circling around each other in the cosmos? You know, you have that sort of uh, initial buy-in. And I wonder if mm-hmm. people had that at the time from Joe versus the Volcano or... It's a good question. I would kind of suspect not on a huge level. Like I yeah. think Joe versus the volcano was pretty small in its box, like relatively small in its box office and not right. super well received critically. This movie sleepless in Seattle did crazy. Well, I think the TriStar that released it was kind of like, and this is a nothing. We'll just put it out. Uh-huh. It became the fifth highest grossing of movie of the year. Wow. Of 1993 behind Jurassic park, Mrs. Doubtfire, the fugitive and the firm. Damn. And then Sleepless in Seattle. Like, that is a pretty, I think that that is the sort of box office that you don't really see these days anymore. I mean, even before the pandemic, to see a movie like this hit so well, I think probably Crazy Rich Asians is the closest we've had in, like, recent times to a Mm rom-com doing this well. But even that one felt more... Spectacular? Yes. There was a bigger scale. Like, we're going to another country. We're having these crazy fashions. We are... We have a huge ensemble. There's a gigantic is, wedding where water comes rushing down the beautiful aisle. Beautiful wedding. Yes. Talk about a scene that just makes me cry for like no reason. <laughs> it's a wedding scene in Crazy Rich Asians. I'm like, everyone's it's so beautiful. Extremely striking. Everyone's extremely beautiful and sweet. The way that like uh, whatever the groom is like looks down at her, he just oh. gives this good face. Yeah, but that guy's great. Yeah. By comparison, this is like people just like in sweatpants in their living mm-hmm. rooms. So mm-hmm. much sweatpants. So much living rooms. Yeah. Okay, so we've praised the the sort of overarching structure. We've praised the actors. Mm-hmm. Do you want to give us, to, to get into more specifics, do you want to give us a little bit of a plot recap, a plot yeah. summary, and we so, can get into it all? It's not quite as uh, picaresque as Joe versus the Volcano, so I don't think I really need to do the different stages quite as much. But 
Um, we start on a funeral. Uh, Sam Baldwin, played by Tom Hanks, and his son uh, Jonah Baldwin have just mm-hmm. lost their wife slash mother, respectively. And he is depressed and needs to uh, needs to get a big change. So he's going to move from Chicago to Seattle. Chicago being, I guess, in Nora Ephron's mind, just a great place to leave at the start of rom-coms. This could be a whole other subplot about how I think all of my friends view Chicago as a place to come and go. And I'm like, why don't you all just live here? It's a great city. <laughs> well, maybe they've just been too influenced by Ephron films. Yeah. And it's like, oh yeah, Chicago, where they where they peace out from in the first five minutes of these. <laughs> um, there is that gorgeous, not to interrupt oh, your yeah. plot summary to get right into it, but that gorgeous opening shot where you're just seeing Tom Hanks and the kids standing on this hill in mm-hmm. a cemetery, and then the camera zooms up and you see the whole Chicago skyline behind yeah, them. Yeah, it's like there's the, the John Hancock building. It's right there, huge. It's a very, yeah, yeah, really it's a very cool, cool shot. Yeah, there's some beautiful Chicago architecture from inside his, like, shot from inside his architecture form. I think he's right next to the, I always forget if it's the Tribune building or the Board and Trade building, any, whatever. Um, so he is like, I'm going to move across the country to Seattle. We need a change. I got to be somewhere where I don't see Maggie around every corner. And meanwhile, completely unconnected, uh, a woman named Annie in Baltimore has just gotten engaged and is introducing her uh, her handsome but highly allergic <laughs> fiance walter to her family nebishi um, i feel like this this is the kind of character that the word nebishi was made for. yes he's a little bit it's a bill pullman nebish character and i usually think of bill pullman as kind of like sexy devil may care mm. or like authoritative president saving sure. humanity from alien invasion <laughs> this is he's really good at this like he's kind of just like awkward and stiff in a really fun yes. way so what happens is a few years, a year and a half into the into Seattle the Seattle move, Sam's son Jonah calls a like late night psychologist talk show to kind be like, like a Delilah. Did you ever listen to Delilah? No. Delilah. It was similarly. <laughs> I think it was a national radio show where people would just call into this lady and talk about their lives yeah i remember it mostly for that little theme song yeah i mean that genre still clearly exists if you if you scroll the tuner late at night but um uh but so yeah i don't know like what the cultural like reference for these were if they were thought of as trashy or like people like took them very seriously but um sam baldwin certainly thinks it's a little trashy but um but he 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 takes the call it's revealed that like he's not sleeping. He's in Seattle. They give him the the call in nickname Sleepless in Seattle. He speaks beautifully about his wife. Thousands of women across the country listening to the radio fall in love with him, including the smart, jaded, self-aware and yet nevertheless sort of in spite of herself swept up her feet Annie Reed mm-hmm. who listens while she's driving uh in her car and become sort of preoccupied with him so after that the plot intrigue is relatively simple in terms of events it's like he is sort of tom hanks is sort of persuaded to 
get back out there, start dating. He sees a woman named Victoria, whom his son is a total asshole to. <laughs> um, I never seen anybody cook potatoes like that. Yeah, uh, the kid is the kid, the kid. The kid is so fucking mean to her. Um, I love it. And uh, and you essentially have that that Tom Hanks. His side of the story, he doesn't even know anything's happening. He's just kind of in his own single dad rom-com, trying to date, live in his life. And that's kind of like just a, yes. a, an emotional through line. And then for a long time, having exists. no clue that Annie mm-hmm. exists. Yes. And she has become sort of like preoccupied with him in a way that she can't quite rationalize, uh, despite trying to. She does a little light stalking. Uh, as is sometimes we see in rom-coms. Under the guise of her newspaper job, which is where she knows Rosie O'Donnell, her boss slash friend. She's kind of like, yeah, maybe you should investigate this story slash emotional crisis you're having. Yeah, she has the most, I think, stereotypical rom-com-y job. She works in a newsroom. I mean, Um, we have a newsroom, we have a newspaper writer and an architect, which maybe are the two most. (laughs) Yes, they are. Yeah, that they, they, so those are, those are uh, very sort of. I don't know if those are by the book or if those were writing the book in this moment or somewhere in the spectrum. But she eventually flies out to Seattle essentially to spy on him. I think, no, the idea is not that she flies out there to spy on him. She flies out there to introduce herself to him and then just feels like it's not right um, and is almost hit by a taxi uh, in what feels like a reference to this movie An Affair to Remember, which runs through it. It is key because at that moment, after... Tom Hanks has just seen off his uh, his sort of new girlfriend, the uh, Victoria. He's saying to his son, like, you know, this is not a rom-com, nothing like, this is real life, there's no such thing as perfect. And, like, he gets cut off because he looks up and sees Meg Ryan, and it's like a bolt of lightning. And so you start to, like, they almost see each other a couple more times, mm-hmm. and in spite of the, you know, characters all being savvy 90s people who don't believe in love at first sight or predestination, except for the kids who do believe in love at first sight, predestination, reincarnation, uh, you do get this sense that, like, these two people have some cosmic connection to each other. Mm-hmm. And she has proposed in a letter which she didn't intend to send, but then Rosie O'Donnell sent it for her, and it was received a by... Classic to all the boys I've loved before. Exactly, scenario. exactly. Her letter is sent by her friend. It is received by the son, Jonah. So Jonah and Rosie O'Donnell are really, like, are doing a lot of that, like, rom-com mm-hmm. ally work to bring them together. It has been proposed that they meet at the top of the Empire State Building on Valentine's Day. Another reference to an affair to remember. Hijinks ensue. Jonah, with the help of his uh, uh, little co-conspirator Jessica, books himself <laughs> a united flight uh, across the across the country. And in the very last scene, in spite of some like he gets in the elevator down as she comes out of the elevator up, hijinks. Oh, it's so good. The there's some, there's some real backpack. tension there. Oh yeah, I was like, no, no, they're going down. <laughs> She, the son leaves his backpack. They return and find the three of them find themselves the last people on the observation deck, along with a a slew of extremely patient Empire State Building staff members. <laughs> and they take each other's hand, uh, which he has mentioned in his original iconic phone call that 
you know, he knew he would be in love with his previous wife the second he took her hand. And then Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan just kind of have the look. You know, he looks at her. She is beheld by him. She also looks at him. He is beheld by her. The theme from an affair to remember plays. They get in the elevator. She says, nice to meet you. And uh, and then that's it. Credits yeah. roll. There's been a scene where she's very magnanimously broken up with oh, her fiance, Walter. Yes, which, again, also is something that I really treasure about an affair to remember that – I don't know. Can I spoil an affair to remember? I think you're good. I yeah, think okay. the statue of limitations on that, what, 1950-something movie yeah, is, yeah, is yeah. up. So something that I find really charming under an affair to remember is that these two people who are both engaged fall in love on a cruise ship, and then they go back to their fiancés, both of whom are just, like, so mature and, like, supportive and patient and, like, responsible and are like, yeah, you know, if you feel this thing, you need to act on that. So... Um, even though the movie does kind of, I'd say, bully Walter and Victoria in the middle, which mm-hmm. is um, basically Bill Pullman as Meg Ryan's sort of supposed other. I actually don't know the actress playing Victoria, but um, but she has a it kind Barbara of Barbara Garrick. Barbara Garrick. It kind of does a little of like, can you believe this guy with his allergies and this girl with her <laughs> annoying laugh? But you know, in the end, like he is like you know. I don't think you should settle for me. I don't want anyone to settle for me. Like, mm-hmm. And she gives him back his ring and uh, and she goes to the Empire State Building. I like when she says, she, what is she? She's something like, oh, you deserve better or something. Or I don't deserve you. And he's like, no, no. Okay. <laughs> and the way he says, okay, is like 10% annoyed, <laughs> even in the scene where he's been so magnanimous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I also just remember that Bill Pullman is also in A League of Their Own. So there was a real League of oh, Their Own yeah. through line happening here. Wow. And then he's the, in While You Were Sleeping, he's the... He's the one the, that actually gets the yeah, girl. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's not, okay, great. Cool. Yes. The term, the sort of um, rom-com term that was codified by Mike Showalter it, for this character archetype is the Baxter, as in the guy in the rom-com who's, who's like perfectly fine, mm-hmm. but like not the right guy. Yeah. And so in the movie, the Baxter, he's playing that sort of character who's always getting dumped by someone who then goes on to find the right guy. And this trope goes all the way back. Like his girl Friday has this with Ralph Bellamy as the sort of like perfectly Mm -hmm. fine fiance, but like, you know, she's supposed to be with Cary Grant, not with Ralph Bellamy. Yes. And so that, I think Bill Pullman plays it excellently here. Like, I think it's a perfect, it's so funny and weird in all of his little quirks. I love that he, he proposes to her with this, like, you know, beautiful ring. And then he goes, I had it sized. It was my mother's. I had it sized down. She had these really fat fingers. <laughs> it's just like all those little moments where you're like, oh, bro. yeah, they're like, they're a cute couple. You just, they do a really good job of striking that tone. You're like, yeah, it's just not right. Yeah. Not and I've seen some articles or whatever clickbaity retrospectives that are like, wow, actually Walter was totally fine and she was a jerk to dump him. And I'm like, the point of the movie is not that he's bad and she's dumping him because he's a jerk. The point of the movie is don't marry someone if you're not in love with them. Like I do kind of feel like we can universally agree that's a good message, right? Like don't marry someone you're not in love with because it will probably screw you over in the long term. So yeah, I get a little annoyed when pe- I think people can kind of like cherry pick rom-coms out of context and then write these mm-hmm. takedowns of them that I think are not well-deserved. I think I think like the, what there is 
I think it's smart to cast someone like Bill Pullman, who you're right, has a little bit of like a sex appeal and can play the Han Solo stand in and mm-hmm. space balls and totally. can be the romantic lead. And while you're sleeping, that's different than if you had cast David Hyde Pierce in this role where you really, <laughs> you're really like leaning it, you know, yeah, you're putting yeah, a hat yeah. on a hat with that one. Yeah, that's but right. this is a little more like, Oh yeah, it's a, he's playing this character, but you still get the fundamental appeal of Walter. Yeah. I think that's a, I think that's a good call. I meant to tease you with this in our last episode. Uh-huh. This movie, Sleepless in Seattle, has my favorite ever Meg Ryan line delivery. Okay, gosh. I was going to see if you could, I was going to warn you about that in advance to see if you could guess. I kind of doubt anyone <laughs> would uh, guess this line. Let's see. I'm trying to think of like, every now and then I write down little lines mm-hmm. that I like. I like, uh, I like when she says, you know what it was? It was like kismet, but not, if you see what I mean. So that was a Two Meg Ryan. making a wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's your favorite Meg Ryan line delivery? Mine Can is you at the it? very beginning. Uh-huh. She and Walter are, are getting ready to go to her family's house for Christmas. Mm-hmm. They're going to meet her family. He's like listing off all the whatever cousins and aunts and uncles and relatives that he mm-hmm. has to meet. And he's like, I'm never going to remember. How am I going to remember all these people? And she goes, oh, well, Walter, you will. <laughs> <laughs> I find it so funny and charming and such a, like, in a weird way, a really interesting look at that character who's just like, well, it'll happen. Yeah. Like, she has no advice. She just has this confidence that it will happen. And I find that line so charming. And then, of course, the other most iconic moment in this movie is her singing along with Jingle Bells on the radio and just kind of getting caught going, horses, 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 horses. It's so funny. That yeah. scene where she's singing, oh my gosh, it's so funny. And all of her little, the, the whole movie is kind of doing these little interesting parallels between Sam and Annie where either they are kind of, there'll be match cuts where they're doing the same action mm-hmm. or they'll some, somehow intersect with each other. And so she's listening to Sam on the radio call with the kind of like quack doctor psychiatrist and the things she's sort of saying to her radio is often the things that he's sort of directly saying to the doctor and Meg Ryan has all these great little faces of surprise that they've kind of said the same thing at the same time yeah she does so many good acting alone scenes the scene where she re-listens back to it's kind of a silly uh it's kind of a silly like premise because she just switches on the radio one night when she can't sleep and they're like it's the the best of it's the best of you know remember disappointed in denver and it plays like a five second sound <laughs> marooned bite. in miami marooned in miami five second sound bite and sleepless in seattle and then it plays like the full three minute speech <laughs> of his but during it you get this great like meg ryan she's like slicing the peel off an apple in one long mm-hmm. spiral which is another little weird synchronicity thing and just like from sort of like Nancy can't sleep energy is moved to tears listening to this monologue. She just has a lot of moments where she's not playing off anyone and she, you know, just sort of like holds the screen magnetically, which I really am impressed by. I'm so glad you brought up that scene because that was by far my biggest revelation of watching this movie, mm-hmm. rewatching it again, because the way that scene, it's all in one take. She yeah. comes into the kitchen. She's kind of like you're saying, sort of antsy, like, oh, I don't really want to turn on the radio, but I will. Uh-huh. Turns it on, gets the apple. She sits down at the table, again, all unbroken. You're watching her peel an entire apple. 
And then as she's doing that and listening to this radio call in, the camera is just slowly, slowly pushing it on her face. And by mm-hmm. the end of it, she's like in tears. Yeah. And I'm like, whoa, that was just a full, Meg Ryan just gave us a full arc mm-hmm. from, like you're saying, antsy, can't sleep energy to like really genuinely crying. Yes. All just completely in one take, sort of timed to, you know, this speech that they're playing on the radio. Like, that is an incredible feat of acting. Yes. Yes, it really is. She's, I mean, I assume they were playing it live and she was responding to it, but it's so, I feel like we talked about this earlier, the like, the actual mechanical secret of like, one of the big, it, I just feel like it's like a joke of like, the big question about actors is how do they cry about something when mm-hmm. they're not sad? And how we went to, you know, acting school and like came out and I still don't know that I could do what <laughs> she does in that. I would, I, I just have to be like, I don't know, I'd just be squeezing my, like, face trying to make something come out of it. Um, Because there's no, like, oh, we can cut away and you can sort of work yourself up off screen. Like, it's all in that one Mm -hmm. take. And as you say, like, it's time to the dialogue. So she's got to be, she's reacting to little beats in what he says. So it's got to be actually, like, playing there in the room. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of times people tend to think of acting as, like, speaking. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, I think that's the side of acting that gets emphasized, but actually Line so delivery. much of, Yeah. So much of acting is, like, listening and responding. And I think you're totally right that all those scenes where she's alone and she's either watching or she's listening to something, like, those are, I would say, her standout acting moments in this movie more so than some of her plot line gets a little bit, like, goofy, screwball-y. I'm investigating him and hiring a private eye and, yes. like more heightened in that way but the quiet stuff where she's listening or she's just like sitting on a dock like contemplating life i think that's where she really stands out in this movie yeah i think you're honestly it's kind of weird about as you say like there is this there's melancholy there's sadness there's cynicism i think unfortunately that is kind of undercut by those like as you say more screwbally moments which and i really think I think the big culprit is is that score, which I again I just think is doing way 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 too much. But, but yeah, that does lead to a little bit of tonal weirdness. But I don't know. I mean, it does still all feel of a piece. What I would say my general like big picture take on this movie is mm-hmm. is I think it is a phenomenal Tom Hanks father son drama mm-hmm. dramedy. Yeah. And an okay make Ryan rom com. And they're kind of mashed sure, together. Sure. And the the parts where she's most directly intersecting with the Tom Hanks story, I think are wonderful. Yeah. And kind of everything else in her story is just like just okay. And so that's I think what's holding this movie back from being like one hundred percent a masterpiece. Mm-hmm. But man, the stuff with Tom Hanks and his son, like is just so goddamn good. Yeah, they have a really fun Again, I wonder like where the pop culture antecedents for this are, but they have a kind of like a like a a modern parent child like real honesty, like no topic off limits. Mm-hmm. It's very similar to in Love Actually, the Liam Neeson mm-hmm. storyline with his little son in that, where they're yeah. very like Aww. frank in a very charming way. Yeah, yeah, they're like the scene where they're brushing their teeth and the. <sighs> And the kid is like, are you going to have sex with this woman? And I, I just feel like I've been used to like the idea of Tom X being like, you can't ask me that. And he goes, well, I hope so. That's the idea. How do you know about this stuff? <laughs> so charming. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. It's so good. And I think that we were talking about with when Harry Met Sally how that was a very collaborative process. And I mm-hmm. think there was a similar thing happening here where Tom Hanks himself was the one who 
who I think the way he phrased it was he felt like Efron had written the father-son relationship, like, almost from a little more of a, pater- a maternal point of view, like, with mm. a softness that Hanks didn't quite feel was right. So he kind of pushed for a little more of that edgier quality within the still the sweetness of it. And yeah. I think that comes through so well and works so well. Yeah, they're, like, final fight where... He's going around being like, I'm going away. I have a right to do this. If you if if you don't do something, don't go rolling in poison ivy. If your finger falls off, it's staying off. It's a great like and they like they do, I think, a good device of like chasing each other around the house, like saying something to the door and then slamming the door and then going back mm-hmm. to another room and then the kid comes out and does this really funny, like angry walk down the hall towards Tom Hanks and he's talking to himself about having sex with girls in college and then says, How long have you been standing there? It's just a really good, snappy dialogue that is like earned by their whole cool informal dynamic through the whole movie Mm -hmm. so yeah i do think you're right it's really strong it's tricky with kid actors kid actors can be hit or miss and Mm -hmm. i think this kid is pretty good he's got some line deliveries which feel a little too kid actorly to me Mm -hmm. but but you know overall i think he he does what he needs to do, and their relationship, you know, the, the sort of chemistry between the two of them is quite strong. I think it's so good. I also feel like we should real quick do a sidebar. Mm-hmm. I I don't want to I, I don't ever want to get too gossipy on this podcast, but I do feel like as we're talking about like Tom Hanks and fatherhood, can we just acknowledge <laughs> that you and I both went to college with Tom Hanks's infamous son Chet Hanks? Yeah. Yeah, I just feel like that needs to be said. Um, And I don't know why I didn't bring this up last week. I actually um, sat a row behind Tom Hanks at a play in college that our friend Anakin directed that Chet was in. Oh, Emily was in it. And Emily was was in it. This must have been before I was close with Emily because I would have gone to see it for her. Yeah. Then, um, yeah, okay. And Emily was in it. (laughs) Yes. And yeah, I went the night that Tom was there. Tom and Rita were both there Mm -hmm. and they sat the row in front of me is just very small, like, running gun student theater. You know what I mean? Not one of the big prestigious plays that the official school put on. So no. just kind of, like, in a little, like, tiny hot theater setting. Yes. Like, I distinctly remember it being hot and Tom Hanks just, like, taking off his sweater. Like, okay, we're going to be here for a while. I gotta. Here's the gossip I will definitely trade in. Emily says uh-huh. that Tom and Rita were both so nice. Oh, good. So that's nice to hear. It's funny that we didn't bring any of this up last week when we were like, "What are what are our thoughts on Tom Hanks?" <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's I I like also uh, you know I have a friend who has a funny story about peeing next to Tom Hanks in the bathroom of that theater, um, oh. and being like, "I don't want to be that guy," and Tom Hanks being like, "Yeah, be that guy." Oh, <laughs> uh, so proof of Tom Hanks is world's nicest man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, Chet's doing his thing. You know, best of luck But yeah, just every time he pops up in a new news story, I'm like, how funny. Like, we were in a, a history class together one time. Yeah, uh, human sex is what I was in with. Which, which, oh. which God, is its own, it its its own. own story in history, which we better not un, uh, open up right now. I really, I kind of wanted to bring that up because at this, I just wanted to acknowledge at this point in the movie, in the, in Tom Hanks's life, he's also been a dad for a while. I, he had had, he has had one marriage that he has two kids from, and then he and Rita have two kids together. So at this point, he, by the time he's making Sleepless, he has like a son that's like 15, 16, a daughter that's like 10. Chet is, I think, two or three years old and Mm -hmm. they haven't, they're eventually going to have another kid. So he has a lot of that 
real life dad mm-hmm. experience that I'm assuming he's he's bringing to the role. Sure. Also, last week, no, two weeks ago, when we were t- <laughs> talking about Meg Ryan being Catholic, and I was surprised because she right. had wasp energy to me, and I jokingly said I should have researched what Tom Hanks's religion what'd, was. What'd you get? Okay, well, like so much. So he apparently grew up like his parent. One of his parents is Catholic. One of his parents is Mormon. But then at some point, Mormon, he described wow. himself as like a Bible thumping evangelical. Really? When he was a teen. But then here's the big thing that I can't believe I forgot. So he is now Greek Orthodox because that's what Rita Wilson is. This is how, this is like the origin story of my big fat Greek wedding is that Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson produced that movie because it basically mirrored their own life. What? Yeah. So that's how they kind of like get involved. That's how that movie becomes a thing. And Whoa. so, of course, I know about Tom Hanks's religion because <laughs> they, I mean, the movie was not based on them, but they got involved to boost it and support it because he Holy had had this experience moly. like, you know, marrying into her family. This, <laughs> yes, this very intense religion. So, of course, we know about Tom Hanks's religion. Wow. Fascinating. So there you go. That was a real journey that I went on in my Wikipedia deep dive. Yeah. This is not an angle that I think about that often with people. Mm-hmm. But, and sometimes I think about their politics. I feel like we got into that a little bit with some people. But uh, yeah, yeah, that's uh, that is an interesting lens on on the whole Hanks, the whole Hanks fam family. Um, mm-hmm. Any good gems about Meg Ryan's personal life? No. What's she up to at the time? Okay. <laughs> is she married to Let's Dennis see, Quaid no, at the time? What is she up to? I think that no, there's she, nothing to say. I'm trying to remember. I think that they had maybe just gotten married but hadn't had a kid yet i was Hmm. looking at she does two movies between joe versus the volcano and sleepless Mm -hmm. one is a jim morrison um biopic with val kilmer called the doors Doors, i think she's i haven't seen it i think she's one of the 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 like wives or love interests she's one of the doors that he goes through (laughs) yeah she's one of the doors and she does some movie called prelude to a kiss yeah with alec baldwin heard of that Have you seen that nope it sounded very just sounds sounded like, a movie. like the type of movie they don't make anymore like kind of like a magical like i think the plot is that she and alec baldwin are gonna get married and somehow she switches bodies with an old man and he's like what then goes to bond with the old man but not in a quirky comedy way in a like poetic romantic drama way she switches <laughs> bodies with an old man <laughs> Again, what? this is really me sort of very quickly skimming the sure. plot summary there. Sure. But, okay, it looks like she, and then she marries Dennis Quaid in, oh, you know what? She marries Dennis Quaid in 91, and then they have their son, Jack Quaid, who's now also an actor, in mm-hmm. 1992. So that would have been maybe right before she filmed this? Huh. If they had a son in 1992. Yeah, and she, right? This movie came out in 1993. Unless... Because it wouldn't have been, it couldn't have been before she was pregnant. Then they would have filmed it in like ninety one or, who knows. But yeah, there it seems like she okay, might have so had right a kid around this time. Wow, damn. Uh, so they're both parents. That's cute. Yeah, new parent on her part. Aww. Uh, the other Meg Ryan observation I have about this movie is that she in this movie has like the best hair that I've ever seen anyone in my whole life. Is, have. is this your favorite Meg Ryan hair? I was, I was like, like, I couldn't look away because i think it has that quality of like a horse like a beautiful horse mane (laughs) and there's some like innate horse girl part of me that's like oh my god a horse mane hair it's my dream i think it's also a type of hair that sort of we don't have women have like actresses have anymore it's 
it's not like the beachy waves that everybody does, but it's not straight. It's just like thick, mm-hmm. no layers, long, and so shiny. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's just the era I grew up in that this was just like imprinted on me as like, this is what beautiful it's hair good, looks beautiful like. beautiful 90s hair, yeah. But in that scene where she's peeling the apple and crying, giving an impressive performance, Mm -hmm. half of my brain was also like, oh, my God, her hair is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life. This is a good lens. See, that was not something I responded to, but I'm like, yeah, I think it's good hair. Great hair. It's great hair. Um, Okay. So I think the one thing I like about this movie is its ability to get, like, pretty dark Mm -hmm. and intense. I think that the... That's more so in the Sam and the Tom Hanks side of things than in the Annie side of things. Yeah. But but I think that the seat, just like the him losing his wife feels so palpable. And they have this like device where the wife will sometimes kind of appear. Mm-hmm. You have a magic ghost I mean, wife. Yeah. Yeah. But not in a way that feels cheesy or overly dramatic even. Like right. she just kind of like wanders into the room and sits with him on the couch and they like kind of chat for a minute. Yeah. It's very understated in a way that i really like yeah i kind of liked that it wasn't like a runner or that there was like a big speaking of bill pullman there's a uh an iconic to me an iconic uh absent mom scene is or absent mom movie is the movie casper where bill pullman is mm, the dad with mm-hmm. the kid who's like won't get over the mom and but in that it's like this big like he has this climactic ghost wife scene where he like lets her go and she like turns into light or whatever. Um, but I like that this was kind of, yeah, understated. And then I think the scene that really devastated me was when the kid like has a nightmare and he wakes up and first he's like calling for his mom because you can tell mm-hmm. that that would just be his instinct to do that yeah. when he's still kind of half asleep. Yeah. And then Sam's like, I'm coming. And then the kid's like, then he just switches to being like, dad, dad. And like that in and of itself was very heartbreaking. Yeah. And then their whole conversation post dream was very heartbreaking because sam says like your mom used to always be the one that would comfort you when you had a bad dream so i don't quite know like what i'm supposed to do now like should i do the thing she used to do should i do my own thing and they kind of just like work through it together yeah in a very lovely way yeah and the kid is that was that the scene where the kid says like i forget what she looked like i'm starting to forget what she looked like yeah 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 god that's uh it's the movie what's interesting is that Recent Widower is not an uncommon rom-com device, Mm -hmm. but because this movie spends so long, because this movie spends the whole movie before, you know, the actual central couple meet, I feel like it does get to spend a little bit more time maybe than some of these movies do actually digging into that sort of like grieving process. You know, it makes it really Mm -hmm. significant. It's a huge part of their life. It's not their only defining characteristic, but it's... It really, um, it really explores that thing, which, which you know, in real life can take surprisingly long. Can can take in a certain sense, you know, people's whole lives, but you know, can be mm-hmm. like extremely present for long periods of time. So yeah, it doesn't feel like it's just a plot device. No, exactly. It's not. It's not just a convenient way for him to be a single dad. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's exactly. an actual major thematic concern of the film. Yeah, and then I like that. It becomes this idea, of course, as it would be for any single parent, that you're sort of like anyone you date is sort of getting folded into your whole family unit. Mm-hmm. And so then it becomes this like, well, which which one does Jonah like best too? And yes. jo- and and this movie has a really interesting mix of like this romanticism and this pragmatism. Mm-hmm. Like there's 
Tom Hanks is getting all these letters from women across the country who want to date him. And he's like, I should just, I'm not going to date someone from, you know, Texas. Like, <laughs> we live in Seattle. It doesn't make sense. I to- love his little, this is just a really great scene when he pulls down the map and goes, where is Seattle? Now, where is Baltimore? There's, look, one, two, three, four, five, six. There's like 28 states in between there. I'm not going to date <laughs> someone from Baltimore. I'm going out. <laughs> and I think you have that, like, he's very, like, I should I should pragmatically date someone, you know, <laughs> that's in my social sphere where I live. Yes. And Meg Ryan is very much like I should pragmatically date this really nice man that I'm engaged to that like checks off all the boxes that we we want the exact same amount of dishes on our registry. Mm-hmm. Like we're so in sync. Everyone likes him. That just makes sense. And the movie is like Obviously, I think in real life, those things probably are true. But the movie then gives into the romanticism of like, well, what if there is something more than the pragmatism? Mm-hmm. And what if in some way it does make sense that you should <laughs> date this woman who sent you a letter that lives in Baltimore that your son kind of picked out with his magical childness? I think the movie does a really good job of like holding those two truths at once and sort of making fun of the you know, sort of cheesy or or these like rom-coms that make us cry, but also being one of those as well. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, it does sort of manage to eat its cake and have it too, you know, which is, I guess we often say that as like a criticism we call something like, I feel like sometimes that is sort of considered to be of a piece with hypocrisy, but mm-hmm. it can also just be artistic virtuosity when you're like, look, we're mm-hmm. gonna, we're gonna... As I've said this before, you know, we're going to satirize the thing and we're going to experience the thing at the same time. And I think that's, I think it's really powerful when things can do that. And I like it as a, like part, one of the runners of this movie, which I'm, I feel like we have to talk about is just the, as you said, the whole affair to remember thing. And this Mm -hmm. like hilarious runner that every woman of any age from anywhere, just this is the one movie that reduces them all to tears Mm -hmm. and that no men can really understand this movie. (laughs) Like, I think that that is similar to some of the one harry met sally stuff that's like men are like this women are like this this like, movie is it's, even more of that like men are from <laughs> jupiter or women you know from yeah Mars, whatever venus and mars i don't know what it actually is we, we're we don't know yeah but it does it does oh it spends i think even more energy on playful like essentially men are these kind of creatures women are these mm-hmm. kind of creature stuff but i think the playfulness is the key mm-hmm. right like i don't think the movie is sort of saying I 100 I don't ignore Efron saying I 100% believe this. She's kind of saying like let's exaggerate mm-hmm. something for comedy. Similar to actually the moment where everybody keeps quoting this article that says like it's easier for a woman to get killed in a terrorist attack than a woman over 40 to get married mm-hmm. or something like that. And Meg Ryan keeps being like this isn't true, this isn't true, and Rosie O'Donnell goes no, it's not true. It feels true it's though. True. Yes. And I think that's the energy of this, like, men are like this, women are like this scene. It's like, well, that's not really true, but... It feels true. It it feels true. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. That's right. And that does feel, uh, you know, that... I think you actually really hit... That's kind of a key line for for a lot of this movie's sort of, like, philosophy about all these things are, oh, predestination is not true. It it feels true, you Mm -hmm. know. Oh, you know, true love is not real. Mm, It feels real. You know, there's, like... Yeah. it's, It's sort of acknowledging, like... Yeah, at the end of the day, like, what we can be rational about, we should, it would be wise to also acknowledge the ways in which it's like, well, but it feels this way, so. Yes, and I think, to kind of, like, get on my rom-com soapbox Please. for a minute. I love it when like, you I do think, that. <laughs> I think one thing this movie 
like maybe that one of the central tensions of this movie is this idea of like the the pragmatic romance you would have in real life and then the romantic romance you'd have in a rom-com or a romantic drama and like there's that line where rosie o'donnell's like you don't want to be in love you want to be in love in a movie Mm -hmm. like that it's you know that there's a difference between these things and don't get too caught up but i think sometimes in the way people talk about rom-coms and this even ties back into the like oh this is like romanticizing stalking thing i think sometimes there is an inability to acknowledge understand that like these movies are just fantasies Mm mm-hmm and I think sometimes this gets tied into these these movies are aimed at women. Subtext, women are kind of dumb, so women will just do whatever's in these movies. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think you usually, like, when someone watches Ocean's Eleven, there's not like, well, I'm so worried that movie is going to just, like, convince young boys that they should go rob a casino. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? I'm just, like, so concerned that that will teach them that. In the same way, I think I can watch this movie and not think... Well, what this movie has taught me is if I hear someone call into a radio show, I should go to my newspaper job and use the resources of my newspaper job to look them up in the database that only exists on my thing and then hire a private investigator and then get my newspaper firm to fly me across the country to da 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 da. It's like, yeah, no, this movie's not dogmatically saying this is bad behavior, don't do it. But I think the movie is like, you audience are smart enough to understand this is not real life Mm -hmm. and we're not presenting it to you as real life and we're not saying this is how you should date people in real life right it's just like a fantasy it's just a story and i think like it's okay to trust that like women that are watching are smart enough to hold those two thoughts in the same way that rosie and meg are like you know debating yes whether an affair to remember is real or not or whatever i think that i don't know people can watch these movies and not take them so literally and the sort of attempt to take them literally feels kind of sexist to me and like is something i always find kind of frustrating Mm -hmm. i mean i do think that is a we have an un an unsophisticated discourse about a complicated question these days i think we have an unsophisticated discourse about the complicated question of like does a movie glorify slash endorse slash Certainly in this case, I'm not actually worried about the ill social effects of Sleepless in Seattle. There's nothing in here, I think, that I'm like, that will reinforce toxic behaviors. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't have a, I don't have a, uh, a, a solution to that. I do find that um, this is a topic that every time I come across it on Twitter, I'm like, yeah. I don't want to see the takes. Yeah, and obviously I'm not... Like, there are plenty of times where I've been like, this superhero movie is sexist and that's bad because it is reinforcing general Mm -hmm. sexism. So I don't want to say that, like, oh, everything's just a fantasy, write it off. I just think that the lens through which we critique things tends to get more strongly applied to things aimed at women. I think think you're probably right about that. Yeah. Disney princesses a lot, too. There's this idea that, well, little girls watched The Little Mermaid and therefore all little girls will ever want to do is, like, give up everything for a man and marry him. And it's like, okay, well, I was a little girl that watched The Little Mermaid. And what that movie did was that my sister and I spent all day playing mermaids, right? Like it became a source of imaginative play. Yes. My sister and I were not like, well, the only way we can engage with this material is to act out the plot beats and right. we will only focus on the romance. We kind of took what was interesting to us and made games with it. Yes. We were not stupid. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I'm wary of, I'm, I'm really in support of critique that is thoughtful and I'm wary of critique that's like, well, the audience watching this is dumb and we'll just repeat what they see. So throw it all in the trash mm-hmm. heap. 
Yeah. And I like that Sleepless in Seattle, I feel like, really engages with that in the question of how everyone's reacting to an affair mm-hmm. to remember. Like, that is kind of the text of this movie. Yeah. Which is why I wanted to kind of bring it up here. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's, it's you know, it's in a movie that is definitely aware that it is a fantasy. I mean, it's got, like, I think that, you know, in the the bringing in the score, the affair of the remember score at the end, the, like, all this, like, this stylized, like, map of the U.S. that the little, like, dots are flying mm-hmm. back and forth on, the shooting stars, like, it's sort of living in that. And, you know, Joe versus the volcano is also interestingly sort of in that conversation, I feel like, you know, being, mm-hmm. like... We're not striving for realism here. We have real things to say, but we are taking a fantastical lens. These are all, I guess, with different degrees of that. Joe versus the Falcon, you know, being very not high fantasy in the way that we maybe usually use it, but high fantasy compared to this. But mm-hmm. well, this might be the exact midpoint between when Harry met Sally. And Joe versus the volcano because mm-hmm. I do think this is a much more magical movie than when Harry met Sally. It is, yes. There is this element of the fate and that they peel the apple in the same way. And are they reincarnated spirits? And you, you know, you touch someone's hand and you, you just know. Yeah. That feels more magical. And I like this idea that in the tension between realism and romanticism or whatever, like you have Sam and Annie are both sort of like, well, like this fairy tale romance is not for me. And Annie feels that way because she's never had it. Mm-hmm. But Sam feels that way because he has had it. And he's like, well, I can't have it again. You yeah, know what I mean? that's like, true. He's like, I had a perfect love story. I, no one gets that twice. I can't imagine. Whereas Annie's just like, well, all love is made up. Like, I haven't felt this. Her mom's sort of describing something magical. Mm-hmm. And Annie's like, oh, well, I've never felt that way. But that's because it doesn't exist. And so there's, they're like coming at it from two different. They're, they have the same like prag- pragmatism, but from mm-hmm. two different experiences. Yeah. And yet there they are both sitting on benches looking at the water on two different mm-hmm. sides of the country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's all these lovely Nora Ephron, like, directorial specificity. Like, she's very – in the same way that we talked about how she inspired the way that Sally orders in When Harry Met Sally, mm-hmm. where it's like, I want this and this, but if not this, then this on the side. Yes. Like, she's very specific. Mm-hmm. And there's all these little match-cutting scenes where – you know, somebody will pick up, Annie will be picking, will be putting down the phone. And then the next scene is Sam picking up the phone. Just they're kind of mirroring each other. And apparently there's one where like in one scene in Seattle, Tom's coming out of a door. And in the next scene in Baltimore, Meg's coming out of the door. And like Nora Ephron literally had the same door shipped like to different places to film those scenes Whoa. to, to like get the, that feeling of, huh connection uh, which i kind of love as this weird like directorial tick or whatever that no one will ever know but like yes nora efron auteur like yeah. demand your specific artistic yeah it's better than uh, better than better than stanley kubrick torturing shelly duvall because of his his auteur <laughs> yeah. whims um i admit i did not catch that match cut but i will keep an eye out for it next time to uh there's something else too and you've got mail there's some story where like there's a buffet table and mm-hmm. the type of avocado on the table was just, like, wrong. And Nora Ephron was just like, these are not the type of avocados these people would have. Like, we have to switch this out. <laughs> she had this, like, very specific attention to detail that I find mm-hmm. very charming. Sure. So let's talk a little more about the specific, like, affair to remember scenes. The first one, I think, yeah. is when Rosie O'Donnell and Meg Ryan are, like, watching it. Mm-hmm. 
in their apartment. Yes. It's just so charming. Yes. You are, you've seen A Fair to Remember, you're a fan? Mm-hmm. Have you, did you write a column about it? No, I didn't. Oh. Because, well, actually, I think last week we were talking about, or last episode we were talking about movies that we, you only see par- different parts of on TV. Is that one of them for you? That was a movie where I have probably seen the ending of that movie like a dozen times. And then I finally saw the beginning and I was like, what the hell is this? The beginning is so light. Yes. Like it, the beginning is a light rom-com love, and the yeah. end is like a Nicholas Sparks like melodrama. Yes. And I had only seen the melodrama. And the first time I saw the light part, I was like, what That's is funny. This? My first experience was a watch straight through from start to finish when I I wrote a little short play called Movie Night, which is about it like used movie clips that were projected onto the mm-hmm. actors as they watched like it was like the rise and fall of a relationship as they had like over the course of like thirty movie nights. And so I was like, I gotta watch some of the like iconic romances I've never seen. So I watched mm-hmm. A Brief Encounter, fucking awesome. A fair to remember, also awesome. I forget what some of the other ones are, but but those were the two that I most like dug. Um Mm-hmm. It's very light. I mean, it's but it's so, it's super light, but it's super emotionally resonant because it feels to me like it feels like it. The first half of that like really captures this like heady rush of like being. It's like it takes place on a cruise ship. The first half, and they just like meet on a cruise ship and just like fall sort of like head over heels in love with each other in the in like this like five day cruise, which kinda has that like, I don't know, summer camp exhilarating like rush to it. And sort of like lingering in the background is this idea of like, we're gonna pull into port and then what then what are we gonna mm-hmm. fucking do? And they're both engaged. Is that that's the setup? Yeah, right? they're both engaged or 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 something like that. They both have significant others. And um and yeah, they're just that scene that where they're what is the line that they that Rosie and Rosie and Meg both cry at where it's like mm. it's like we are too and I just knew or something it's like, like well that. I, the, the like like yesterday's we we're we're too old now too many winters something about that um winter must be cold for those with no warm memories we've already <laughs> missed the spring so impeccable line delivery thank you so yeah that's it that's such a good scene where they're sitting out there they like come out from this dance where they're dancing cheek to cheek and they just like are looking and being like what are we going to do about this and then yeah they they spend a lot of the second half of that movie apart uh and then go to meet at the top of the empire state building it doesn't work i mean i don't need to recap it if you've watched uh to to recap this (laughs) next part if you've watched Sleepless in Seattle because Rita Wilson does such a good, so funny, her like oh, recapping of it. My God, what an incredible, like, she's in a couple other scenes, mm-hmm. but essentially one big scene performance. Yes, yes. Where she is losing her mind <laughs> describing the plot. It really resonated with me in when I try to talk to people about This Is Us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think I'll frequently be like, and then Randall goes to Rebecca and he used to apologize, but she's so mad, but he doesn't want his mom to be mad. <laughs> like I was really relating to that. Yes. And from a bigger picture point of view, like maybe this is unsurprising as you and I that host a movie podcast, but like I think a lot of times the way I communicate with people is through our shared 
pop culture, mm-hmm. right? And to yeah. watch a movie where people are doing that within the movie, yeah, lots of is it is so charming. That's like the main one, but I feel like all the way through the movie, there are references to other movies. I didn't like chart them mm-hmm. all down, but that's kind of the big iconic one where she she really has the spotlight for like yeah. a full like minute or two, <laughs> describing and becoming increasingly emotional. The the plot it's and so it's, good, it's so well performed but it's also so well written like the things she remembers and doesn't well. remember and i think very there, echoes think like us raining. trying to yeah, summarize yeah, 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 yeah exactly. i think it's raining yeah. and, like, and he goes in the room and I, I don't know i don't know how but they know and they just know yes. and they know <laughs> i think yes. it rings incredibly true mm-hmm. and i think a lot of movies steer away from that kind of thing because it feels too cutesy or like not what you want from a movie but i think that makes relationships feel much more lived in Similar, you know, when Harry Met Sally has this runner about Casablanca and mm-hmm. their sort of like relationship to that and watching that. Like, I do think that that is what people bond over a lot of the time. Yeah. Maybe this is what I was I mean, responding yeah. to when I wrote that little 10 minute play. It's just people watching I and mean, talking yeah. about movies. Maybe it was yeah, when this is you, you and Nora Ephron are on the same line. Hey, I like <laughs> it when you put it like that. <laughs> I love the little scene where little Gabby Hoffman as Jessica then watches an affair to remember and is crying. Yes, yes. <laughs> like the idea that even a small little eight-year-old yes, child, eight-year-old girl is like This is the like best movie the I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, that's such a funny like, yeah. Because exa- at that point, they've kind of already established this sort of, as you say, like a stylized in-universe joke that like one thing all women have in common is mm-hmm. that they are made emotional by this. And she just like clicks as... Little Jonah's sitting next to her, like, fiddling with a tape player, being like, I don't get what's so special about it. <laughs> and the guard, when Meg Ryan is like, she's missed the last elevator Ugh. up. And she's like, Ugh. this is so dumb, but I have to meet someone at the top. I said, I told someone I'd meet them at the top. And he, it, does she say it or does he go, a fair to remember? <laughs> My wife's favorite. Yeah. No, he doesn't even say the movie. He goes, Cary Grant. Cary Grant. And she's like, oh, you know the movie? Yeah, and he's like, yeah, one of my wife's favorites. favorites. Oh, nice. that, like, makes me... What a cry. Now do you think now I'm becoming Rita Wilson talking about this movie? And the guard, he knows. (laughs) And he just, he's, because his own, his own wife is awesome. And she's up there and she's all alone, but then she sees the backpack. And you just Okay, let's talk about the. You know that he'll be coming back for the backpack and he does. I mean, honestly, that was my experience. But what was really getting me. In this last scene is the part where Tom reunites with the kid who has just on his own flown across the country. I love that part of the scheme is that she is that Jessica, whose parents are a travel agent, so she knows how to book things. She's like, well, you can fly alone if you're 12. So I'll say you're 12. And he's like, they won't believe I'm 12. And she says, well, I'll just say you're small for your age and you're embarrassed about it. So they shouldn't ask you about it. (laughs) I think I think Great Efron does idea. such a good job of like really zeroing in on the ages of these kids. Mm-hmm. Like it's the age where he can kind of like ask his dad, like, "Are you going to have sex with this woman?" Mm-hmm. But then he also sleeps with a teddy bear. Yes, like it's such a specific. Like you, you know, he's asking, like, "Are you going to have sex with her?" And you kind of feel like he probably doesn't really understand what that means. What that means, really, he's just like seen it or heard it in movies yeah. or whatever. But he's old enough that he can do that, but young enough that he needs a teddy bear. And, like, thinking about that age of a kid just, like, going to New York and spending all day at the Empire State Building. And then Asking random women. Tom Hanks shows up. I find this reunion to be way more emotional even than the mm-hmm. romantic finale. But he just, like, he shows up and the kid's just like, Dad! And they hug. And he picks him up and then he, like, sets him down and he's on his level and he's like... 
happy, but he's also kind of mad. And he's like, we're doing okay, aren't we? Like, mm-hmm. we're getting we're getting through it okay. Yeah. And, oh, that scene is so good. Yeah. Yeah, it feels like, yeah, like their relationship is also evolving as their their own relationships to the absence of Maggie is evolving. Yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's a, they have a, they have an arc, which is cool, you know? Oh, it's so good. And like, that feels as much like the big emotional climax, like running to the airport climax as the actual. And it's funny that it also makes me think like another sort of standard rom-com beat is like the big fight that happens 80% of the way through the movie Mm -hmm. and the climax is them coming back together. And our rom-com characters don't have that in this. It's, it's dad and son who have this big argument and like storm out and then fly across the, they, you know, run for an airplane, yeah. fly across the country. They reunite yeah. at the, yeah, I hadn't really thought about the way that that does, that does a lot of the emotional weightlifting mm-hmm. of an earned relationship so that at the same time, you know, you have something that there is based on history, based on trust, based on developing relationship. So at the same time, Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks just being like, something about you as soon as I saw you, mm-hmm. like that all works as well. I hadn't really thought about that. that she's quite clever. Quite clever. Yeah, that's Afra. a very good call, Ned. I think that that's a very smart analysis of that. I also think similarly, part of the reason the supporting characters stand out so much is because the banter of the supporting characters has to stand in for the banter that would normally be between the two leads. That's true. And I think that's why Rosie O'Donnell feels so fully realized and like why the Rita Wilson scene, mm-hmm. which also features Victor Garber, mm-hmm. is so good. And, and you get Tom Hanks and Victor Garber like making fun of her. I, that's an extremely, extremely funny bit where they, goofing with each other, describe mm-hmm. the Dirty Dozen and they are driven to tears. And they, Trini, Trini Lopez. <laughs> yeah, that's a good I, I love that. I love when a movie can be incredibly sentimental mm-hmm. and then also like fully taking the piss out of the sentiment mm-hmm. and both can exist. Yep. And I really like that scene. It's I think some, thing. I think Bridget Jones's diary does a good example of this too, where Colin Firth's Darcy in that movie says like, I like you just as you are. And it's like the most romantic thing anyone's ever said. Mm-hmm. And then Bridget tells it to her friends and her friends are like, Oh, that's so sweet. And then they also like make fun of her for it. Like, Mm-hmm. relentlessly or Dolores kind of say it as an inside joke yeah. and I'm like yeah that feels true to how friends are like yes. that that you're kind of like you find it sweet that your friend is so moved by an affair to remember but you're also <laughs> completely making fun of yes yeah of her for that because yeah, we are always we are ourselves we are parodies of ourselves we are you know, yeah. fully deeply heartbeating emotional people and you know self-aware and yeah and I really love the Rosie and Meg friendship. I think mm-hmm. low-key may be one of my favorite, like, rom-com best friendships. I like mm. the that they are both work friends and real friends. Like, that all feels very yeah. truthful, the way that those, like, relationships blend. And they have, like, a really nice shorthand and sort of Rosie's whole background of, like, she's been married and she got divorced because <laughs> I, I like not because she had an that. affair with the whatever the tree cutter, but just seeing him, she was like, "I don't want to be married to yeah, my husband." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Man, yeah, I love her. I love how we get her backstory in that. Extremely fun. So good. Yeah. Okay, are there other scenes that really stood out to you in in this that you want to talk about? Uh, gosh, I like when the kids are in the egg chair together. That's a funny visual. I love when 
Yeah, it's Jessica and Jonah mm-hmm. kind of cuddled up in a chair together. Again, talk about like really getting this age mm-hmm. correct. Yeah. Where the where Tom Hanks kind of walks in and he's like, okay, like I'm processing this happening. And then Jonah's like, Dad, will you shut the door? And he's like, yeah. And he shuts the door and then kind of like thinks about it again and leaves it open like a very mm-hmm. funny. <laughs> yeah. Here's a question. Where would you yeah. rather, which fantastically nice rom-com house would you rather have? Billy Crystal's like penthouse in When Harry Met Sally in New York or Tom Hanks's right on the water Seattle house? 100% the Seattle house. Same, I think. I think. It's yeah. Amazing. Like, I would move there right now. Yes, <laughs> is absolutely. it a real house? Can we buy it? I, I, I just assume the thing is like, I'm sure it is a real house and I'm sure it costs $3 million to live in. Yeah, that's probably true. The um the plot summary described on the Wikipedia describes it as a houseboat. But I don't think it's a boat. I think it's just a house that's on the water. What if it is a houseboat? And that would be insane, I don't right? I think so. It's too big. It's very big. Yeah. It is so gorgeous though. I love being on the water. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an awesome it's an awesome house they have. It's a a really good mix of like interesting architecture but also cozy. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have that coldness that I think some like stylish architecture things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's such a good house. Yeah. Oh my god, what a good house. Yeah, being right there, you just take your little boat out and like go fly your kite on the Hell, beach and then yeah. ride your boat back to your house. What a dream. Yeah. What a good Seattle movie. Yeah, it is. It is. It's probably this and Grey's Anatomy that are my two mental images for Seattle. Mm-hmm. I can't think of another. Does Twilight go to Seattle? I've never seen it. Oh, they're in Washington. It's definitely Fort Pacific Washington. Northwest. Yeah. And then Fifty Shades of Grey also, maybe? Maybe. But I feel that like they shot sense. that in Vancouver. Yeah. <laughs> where they, shoot, <laughs> where they shoot everything. You know what other minor supporting character I love Who's is that? Clarice, the babysitter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. The incredibly deadpan babysitter who maybe has, I don't know, two minutes of screen time. Makes a strong impression. But it's just fully deadpan, almost like a Christina Ricci kind of deadpan. Mm-hmm. And Jonah's gone missing. And Tom Hanks is freaking out and running around going like, Jonah, Jonah. And she looks around. And she just goes, Jonah. <laughs> <laughs> She's floating around like, like a ghost. Just the most meek Jonah. little like, Jonah. <laughs> yeah. Good little bits. I Good little bits. Love Clarice. Yeah. I guess this movie just kind of does go along. Like it is. I think the weakest parts are the Meg Ryan like hires a private investigator or like researches i think it's like a scene of her like typing things into a computer researching mm-hmm. there's an internet research sam thing. the 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 private investigator is the part of the plot that i actually find most most bizarre because it's not even really that relevant no it's just an excuse for her it to be like well how would she recognize yeah him? i guess yeah it's pretty clunky yeah that's a clunky thing the idea that he's out in a restaurant and this guy in a fedora is taking Taking telephoto <laughs> pictures of him. I forgot we literally see the photo being yes. taken. Yeah, I guess that is pretty creepy. It should have just been somehow. I don't know. She should. They should have found the photo a different it just, way. It just just stretches the like the rules of engagement of the movie a little bit too much. But you know, whatever. A misstep here and there, I can forgive. Yeah, and I think it's helpful when a movie has a strong beginning and a good ending. Mm-hmm. I, I find that I can be more forgiving of a little bit of a soggy middle <laughs> this has a hell of an ending for sure and yeah <laughs> i think ending. we talked about most of it but let's just wrap up with the like actual 
Sam and Annie meeting part, which I think is so, I think Hanks and Ryan are like so perfect at playing this. Mm -hmm. Again, it's a scene that doesn't have a lot of dialogue Mm -hmm. and is mostly just them Looking. looking at each other. And I just think it's like kind of perfect. Yeah. Like he, she says, I mean, he, Jonah says, are you Annie? She says, yeah. And the way Sam's like, you're Annie? Because he's kind of been seeing her around. Mm-hmm. He's been seeing this woman around who's like his dream woman. Yes. His son has been describing this woman named Annie, who the son is convinced is a dream woman. Uh-huh. And the dad, Tom Hanks, is like, this is some crazy lady that wrote us. What are you saying? Uh-huh. And this like mind-blowing moment where he realizes these two they are things one are the one and the same. Yes, his dream woman and his son's dream woman. Yeah, and yet he like, he like, he takes a second to adjust her and then he sort of settles in comfortable. She does this like amazing mannerism of like looking at him like i can't believe you and then like looking back down and then like looking again she kind of does this like slow series of double takes as they're walking yes from the observation deck through the hallway to the elevators just her her way of like staring at him and kind of like because she's had the relationship with the idea of him for much longer that you can see her going through this like i can't I can't even still believe this is really happening thing Mm -hmm. because like an hour earlier, she was there like she was out to dinner with her fiance and was like, you know what? You know what? I have to do it. Let's do it. And then she goes. And so it's very, it's very cute. It's, it's very cute and it's nonverbal mostly. It's kind of like a masterclass of it of sort of how you can build and release tension. Mm hmm. Of an ending, I think that the sort of we reference the like elevator mishap where sh- they go in the elevator to go down just as she gets off the elevator mm-hmm. to come up. And you're like, oh no, they've missed each other, and then they come back for the backpack and they meet. And there's this great moment where so they've had this whole just like you're Annie like staring exchange, and then Tom Hanks is like, well, we should go, and it kind of seems like he's just meaning like me and my son should go leave you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like we've had this weird interaction, and then he looks at her and he's like, shall we? And holds out his yeah. hand, and they have this kind of magical hand touch moment. And I think a lot of movies would end it there. Mm-hmm. Would be like, shall we taking your hand, magical end? But similar to the way When Harry Met Sally has the like perfect romance ending, and then kind of the come down of like, what is old Lang Syne about anyway? Mm-hmm. And then even more of the undercutting of like, well, at our cake, we had the coat, we had the chocolate on the yeah, side, yeah, yeah. the coconut cake, and da 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 da. Yeah, 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 I think yeah. this movie. The great moment you're talking about, which I also love, where Annie keeps like looking at Sam like, are you real? And like, what are we doing? And what's happening? Like, I love that the movie ends on that. Mm-hmm. It, it's like perfect romantic moment, then incredibly sweet, kind of slightly awkward even in a way, yes. reality of what's happening. Like, we, what are we doing? We're, what? You're, yeah. We're, okay, we're holding hands and we're getting in an elevator together. And and that the last line is just like, well, nice to meet, <laughs> nice to meet you. Yeah. <laughs> It's very good. There's a, yeah, there's a little bit of an awkwardness to it that I think is, it makes the ending feel less like, well, it's all 100% wrapped up. Mm-hmm. We don't need to think about it again. I think it makes the ending feel like a beginning. Mm-hmm. You're like, yeah, the most romantic version of this, they go on to be married and forever in love. Maybe it's just the relationship that like convinced him he could date again and convinced her not to get into a marriage she didn't want to be into. And yeah. that could be a happy ending of its own kind. Yeah, I do think you're right that it does... That is a way of phrasing the interesting structural choice is that it ends with the beginning, you know, of mm-hmm. a relationship. So that's kind of cool. Which is nice. The um, one thing I, I found actually in my Joe versus the Volcano mm-hmm. research was that I think 
John Patrick Shanley had said that Nora Ephron was filming something else sort of near where they would they were filming Joe versus the volcano. And I think she would come over to visit Meg and kind of had seen Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan together there. And that was maybe what gave her the idea to Mm -hmm. put them together in this. Even though it is kind of funny that they really don't share any screen time. Except for that one scene. Well, maybe she just knew the baggage was there, you know? She's just like, people will be sold. These two can do it from across the nation. They can sell it. Yeah, it's just funny to think, oh, these people have great chemistry. Let's cast Mm -hmm. them together to be in a movie where they don't interact. I'm curious about how much interaction in person they have in their third collaboration, Mm. which I also have not seen. Yeah. Well, we are... I don't know. We, say, we will. We will be getting. To we that may one. discuss we'll, we'll it. Say. We may. Yeah, we will. <laughs> we'll. We'll do it. We'll acknowledge that we've committed mm-hmm. to doing this full Hanks and and Meg cycle. Um, Sleepless in Seattle gets two Oscar nominations: one for best original song for A Wink and a Smile, and then mm. one for best screenplay. And like we said, did crazy well at the box office mm-hmm. and becomes sort of one of the defining romantic comedies of the 90s interestingly and this i think is something we'll pick up in the uh you've got mail episode Mm -hmm. so the same year that tom hanks that that sleepless in seattle comes out tom hanks also releases philadelphia which is Mm -hmm. the movie that wins him his first oscar he's one of those crazy stories where then the very next year he wins the oscar again for forrest gump so we are already sort of starting to see you know for whatever i don't want to we're just seeing the divergent paths that I think Meg and Tom are, are about to really hardcore take, yes. having both come from this sort of like light comedy background mm-hmm. that this year Tom Hanks, you know, wins his first Oscar. And really that, I think, I mean, that and I guess Forrest Gump, I think was probably already in production or made. I don't think Forrest Gump was something he got off the back of winning the Oscar. I think that was just like yeah. a happenstance of those two things happening. But that's a, that, that's a... Winning two Oscars back to back is kind of a one two punch that really will <laughs> put <laughs> Hard your to career ignore. on a very specific path. Yeah. Hard to ignore. And that is not, you know, the story of how Meg Ryan's career goes. But we are kind of taking a little bit of a swerve next week. Mm-hmm. Something brand new for roll calling. I feel like we've looked at a lot of different genres and types of acting and eras of acting, but we are going to be doing a first, which is looking at a voice performance. We're going to be covering. I guess we haven't done that first. yet. We haven't done any animation. Yeah, we haven't done. Oh, that's haven't done crazy. Any animation. Haven't done like, what is voice acting? Wow. What is that like? So we oh, are going to take a wait. look at a movie that I know Ned has seen. Cause Ned and I talk about this movie all the time, all the time, which is 1997's Anastasia, in which Meg Ryan voices the title character. So I'm really excited. Czar's daughter, princess of Russia character. What? Slightly weird time to be covering that movie, but. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. What a movie. Yeah, uh, a hugely influential movie on me in my childhood. Mm -hmm. Like, really can't overstate what impact the movie Anastasia had on my life. Uh, so, yeah, I'm really excited about that. I think it'll be fun to sort of look at what it's like to give a voice performance in a in a not technically Disney movie, but a sort of princess style mm-hmm. movie. Yeah, I'm pretty apt. Me too. I haven't watched it in a while, so it'll be fun to revisit. Roll Calling is produced and recorded by us, Caroline Sita and Ned Baker. Our theme music was created by Patrick Buddy and our logo was designed by Nick Wansersky. You can follow us on Twitter. We are at Roll Calling. You can email us 
rollcalling at gmail.com. That's roll, R-O-L-E. And actually, a couple people have emailed us lately. So thank you so much for sending in those emails. They're lovely to read, and you all are very kind, and it's always much appreciated. Uh, next week, we will be back with Anastasia. I think all, is that our first musical we're covering too? Mary Poppins. Mary Poppins. Oh, and, and in the Heights. I forget Mary Poppins and a uh, special one in the Heights. That's right. Okay, well, our third musical, but our first animated movie, Anastasia. Until then, H and G. Hi and goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>